Well, open your Bibles to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5. <clears throat> I am loving the fact as we look at this text that my right sleeve is covered in water and my right boot is soaking wet. And uh, the spill over spiritual life, Amos is going to spill over his spiritual life into your life. If you get a chance to talk to one of these six about their story, I guarantee you they'll tell it. You ask Adam, you ask Haley, you ask Shar, you ask Carolyn, you ask Kyle, you ask Carson. They're going to tell you their story. Your story is a powerful part of, of your life. Going into Nepal, our story is what we're starting out with because the gospel laces it. It soaks it. The good news of Jesus. It's explicit in the story of the Christian. Amos has a story that people don't want to hear it. Uh, they're blinded to it. And this text is an old-fashioned wake-up call. A lot of these prophets are. Um, but this is one that is a scream from the side of the road that the bus is about to hit you, right? It is a truth that when a bus, a, uh, some, some huge rock is about to fall upon you, that the Lord can rescue you from that rock, but he might not. I know God did not rescue me from the rock that's, that laid me flat, right? He let it happen. Because God is looking for weak and feeble people who can lean on him. The strong don't lean on him. The weak and feeble lean on him and they find their strength in him. So he might just give you more than you can handle. So that's why the message today is titled, There's One Way Out, Maybe. Verse 15 has the word perhaps. A number of the other verses have the word may. So in your mind's eye, I want you to picture the scene. Amos's place of preaching this is probably the entrance of the temple of Bethel, a false place of worship. A wicked king by the name of Jeroboam I had put up, because of political expediency, had put up a false place of worship. They were supposed to worship only at that point in history in the temple, but he didn't want to lose constituents. So as a movement of politics, he set up a place of half worship in Gilgal and in Bethel. And he goes, Amos, this prophet, this country prophet, goes and comes right inside the king's chapel. The lively atmosphere prevails. There's a hustle and a bustle of commerce, dancing, singing, processionals of religious festivals, streams of worshipers carrying, maybe, maybe leading their sacrifices as they go to bring them to the altar to be sacrificed. Abruptly, dramatically, the prophet shatters the peace with a piercing note that sounds an awful lot like a sermon at a funeral. Listen to verse one, verse, chapter five, verse one. Hear this word, which I take up for you as a dirge, as a funeral hymn, O house of Israel. Verse two, she has fallen. She will not rise again. The virgin Israel, she lies neglected on her land. There is none to raise her up. Anything shock you about that language? Why is he calling Israel a virgin? It surely is not because of her purity. By this point in history, she is wayward. She is wicked. It's not because of that at all, nor is it she described as a virgin because of her special relationship with the Lord, because he had used that term in other books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, for other nations, calling them virgins. No, it's probably used here. This term for virgin is probably used here because in that culture, the death of an unmarried girl suggests the absence of a protector. 
She has shattered dreams. She has unfulfilled potential and promise. It's too late. So what is the catastrophe? Well, it will be of such proportions that he, by verse 16, is going to say they called mourners from the fields, the farmers. They called mourners from the city. So they had city folk and country folk. They brought them all into the town, and it still wasn't enough. So they hired professional mourners, maybe from other countries, and they brought them in. It is so bad that it actually overflowed the funeral into the places of joy, the vineyards, he says by verse 16. Spills over into the vineyards, the very place that symbolizes joy and celebration is now weeping concretely, verse 3. The judgment takes the form of an invading army, which we've seen for many of these prophets is the, the Babylonian army. They're going to decimate Israel's military might. Look at verse 3. For thus says the Lord God, judgment will be this army. The city which goes forth a thousand strong, that's a battalion, will have a hundred left. They'll come back a company. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong, a company, will have ten left to the house of Israel. Wow. So the city has been brought low, and it is inconsequential who the foe is. It doesn't matter. He doesn't mention it. The foe is not even named. It is enough to know that it's the Lord's doing. So if you are in a hole today, if you feel like you're at the end of your life, if you feel like your spiritual heart is no longer beating, if you feel like your romantic heart towards your spouse is no longer beating, if you feel like your financial heart is no longer beating, this text gives an answer for how to stop the catastrophe, maybe. Listen to verse 4. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. You might live. Down in verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live. This is a phrase that's used 30 times in Scripture in the Old Testament. It is the Hebrew word daras, which means the bringing into the presence of God a person. A person comes into the presence of God to seek advice. Something in that is a defibrillator of spiritual proportion. So some people... And at times, even the believer needs a spiritual defibrillator. I asked for one of these. Look at this. This is what the defibrillators look like today. I borrowed this from Chuck Mason, and I said, hey, where are the paddles? I want the paddles. He said, no, you're going to hurt yourself. You don't get paddles. I said, I'm not that incompetent. No, maybe so. Uh, electronically, they don't actually don't even make paddles, really, except in maybe the OR. They put these on, stick them on, and it reads your various rhythms and decides what kind of amperage it gives and this shocks you back into rhythm. These are three things, three pleas in this text that are spiritual defibrillators. So whether you have been close to God or far from God, if you are struggling today, you, see, you feel spiritually weak, you feel spiritually cold, you didn't pick up your Bible this last week, you're not really excited to be here, you've struggled for even coming this is something that God does all through Scripture to bring you back to him. He shocks you back. That baptism shocked me back into sinus rhythm of my heart. And God does that as he brings you to his place, as he brings you to his timing. But here we're going to see three of these pleas. I want you to circle them, okay? Under verse 1, I want you to circle the phrase, hear this word. He provides Scripture. Under verse 4, I want you to circle, seek me. 
under verse 6, seek the Lord. Circle those. And then lastly, verse 14, seek good. So if you feel dry, if you feel empty today, if you feel weak and struggling with whatever it is, fill in the blank, whatever it is that you're struggling with, these are three things. Seek the word, seek God, seek the good that we can do to be a part of what God's working, how he's working. These are spiritual pads, paddles that can be stuck on your spiritual heart to shock you back. Here's the first one. Hear this word, which I take up for you as a dirge. Have you ever seen, heard the phrase, it's your funeral? It's your funeral. You want to go do that? You want to, you want to go do something like that? Well, the dire consequences as a result of it, it's your funeral. That's what he's saying here. If you want to ignore God's word today, it's your funeral. It could be the very thing today that could bring you back into sinus heart rhythm. There are 60,000 heart attacks a year. Five to 10% of them are turned around because of a defibrillator. There's 60,000 spiritual heart attacks a year or more. And the word of God provides the shock to bring you back. So this might feel like stepping on your toes today. Every text does to me. Every week it feels like God's stepping on my toes. But I need that. I need that kind of rebuke. I need that kind of shock to my system because I am, my heart is an idol-making factory. My mind struggles from spiritual amnesia. I forget the things. I forget my baptism and my, my growth. I forget the guys that discipled me. And I need to hear the word of God to bring me back to have those things remembered. I struggle with indifference, and I know you do as well. And so these are the kind of things that bring you back to the heart of God, his word. That phrase, it's your funeral, is a slang term from the 1800s, and it's appropriate here. Look at verse 16. Skip to the end. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in the plazas. It's your funeral. And in all the streets, they say, alas, alas, it's your funeral. They also call the farmer to mourning. It's that big of a catastrophe. City dweller, farmer, and professional mourners to lamentations. And in all the vineyards, there is wailing. Wow. Because I will pass through the midst of you. It's your funeral to ignore sermon after sermon. Because it might be the very thing that could have rescued your marriage, your finances, your mental health, your sense of worry, your sense of fear, your struggles, your addictions. If you'll hear God's word, it will change everything. Here's, here's how I'd like to say it. The way you treat God's word is the way you treat God. Ouch. What'd you do with your Bible this week? However you treated this this week is how you treat God. Howard Hendricks, prophet, late prophet, Dallas Seminary said, dusty Bibles make dirty lives. Sin will either keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. The way you treat God's word is the way you treat God. So if you didn't spend time in the Bible this week, you didn't spend any time with God. If you didn't passionately study it, it means you didn't seek the will of God. If you didn't obey it, it means that God was ignored and disobeyed. To obey the word of God is to obey God. To disobey the word of God is to disobey God. It's all throughout scripture, that truth, this idea that the first step 
The first step towards revival and returning to the Lord is always to hear what God has to say to us from his word. Psalm 85 says, Will you not yourselves revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your loving kindness, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. I hear that all the time from people that come to me for counseling. And they don't like the next verse of Psalm 85. Verse 8 says, I will hear what the Lord God says. For he will speak peace to his people and his godly ones. You have in Scripture all that you need, yet we don't spend time with it. And we wonder why our spiritual vitals are so low. One of the vital signs of the Christian is time in this book. Nothing in the realm of human responsibility is so urgent as one's obligation to know and do the will of God. And all that happens through Scripture. Check out this quote from Your God is Too Safe by Mark Buchanan. It's about Bible study. Curious times these. There is simultaneously a glut of the word of God and a famine of it. A drought and a deluge. We have every translation of the Bible you can imagine. I wanted to get Trinity a Bible, extra Bible to mark in at the mission trip. Went to Lifeway and the Bibles there. It's amazing how many different types of Bibles there are. In his list he says we have the NIV, the NEVG, the KJV, the New KJV, the NASB, the NRSV, the NIV, the NEV, the Preacher's Bible, the Worshipper's Bible, the Spirit-Filled Believer's Bible, the Left-Handed Bald Gypsy Fiddler's Bible. That was made up. Versions for the nearsighted and the farsighted. Big print, small print. You can have it any way you like it. Hardback, paper, leather, cloth, in pink, red, oxblood, turtle shell, iridescent orange, psychedelic paisley, with maps and charts and indices and appendices and concordances in the back, holograms of the temple. The food is out there, he says, and it's a banqueting table. We're just picky eaters. Oh, we're buying Bibles, and sometimes we're even reading them, but there's not much evidence that we're studying them. We're nibbling, not devouring, and as they say, you are what you eat. No, America is a virtual colony of biblical anorexics and bulimics where appetites rage for everything but the truth. No, the first part of the CPR, the first defibrillator that gets you back into rhythm is scripture, all right? A clear path makes a confident traveler. As you go through life, if you know your path and if you're seeking the word, your word is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. As you seek it, that makes for a confident traveler. Verse four, let's go on to the next one. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. Again, this word seek, daras, is, it means a worshiper entering the presence of God for guidance and instruction. The encounter in the Old Testament usually happened at a holy place. But the focus is on the submission to God. Here's Amos' instructions in contrast to seeking the Lord with seeking Bethel. Verse 5, but do not resort to Bethel, that halfway house, that False place of worship. Do not come to Gilgal nor cross over to Beersheba. All of these three places are prominent historic religious centers. They were frequented by the Israelites. They all had great stories. I shared a few last time. I'm not going to share them again. But they had become perverted. They were shams. They were shanty town little places of false worship. 
They were, the Israelites were claiming to worship the Lord at these places, but Amos rejected that claim. You are not worshiping the Lord. They are using the name of the Lord in worship, yet they are ignoring his guidance for daily living. They're coming week in, week out to the place of worship, but they're not seeking God during their day. They're not reading the Bible and seeking scripture during the day. Instructions are offered by the priests and the prophets in these places, but they're not of divine origin. Jeroboam had perverted it. He got his own priesthood. He got his own false altar. He put up a, a, a golden calf in that place. It was horrid what they were doing, and they didn't know it. Under such conditions, religious rituals become self-deception. And I think a lot of churches are like that. They go through the motions, and that religious center becomes a place of self-deception. Israel's religion at this point was bankrupt. Her appeal to the Lord was a sham. Her claim for divine favor was mistaken. Only returning to Yahweh was their help. So verse six, seek the Lord that you may live. It's your funeral if you don't seek the Lord. Seek the Lord that your marriage might be rescued, your mental health might be rescued, your sense of peace your fear issues, your anxiety issues, that physical issue that's dragging you down, that you may live. Perhaps it'll turn around. No promises there. Vital sign number two is to seek me 30 times. What does it mean to seek the Lord? The way we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what this is saying is you seek the Lord, meaning you change direction from the thoughts that you have and the things that you're seeking, and in thought and in action, you seek him. So often that was the case. Listen to Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The Israelites had the wrong thoughts about God. They thought God was a lucky rabbit's foot. They thought God was appeased by just coming and sitting and giving, and then that's all God required. That is not what God wants. Let him return to the Lord. He will have compassion on him to do to our God. He will abundantly pardon. Seek God. The, the words are simple enough, but the practice is all-consuming. He doesn't just want part of you. He doesn't want shallow-level repentance. He wants deep-seated all-encompassing repentance. The call is not to find something that's lost, but to pursue someone or something unrelentingly, to commit one's whole life to finding God and to remaining close to him. This is the summon to pursue God with passion. That's what this is. So the second step toward returning, toward revival, is to change directions. There's your blank thoughts and actions, and to pursue God with passion. There's your other blank. Not all renewal is a product of preaching, of judgment on sin, need of repentance. God's goodness also leads us to repentance. And so we seek God and his goodness and what he wants for us. All renewal, though, results in a deeper consciousness of sin. The biblical history, church history itself, accounts for an abundance of renewal among God's people. Selective repentance is a sign of shallowness, but deep repentance has often been the path towards God. Thorough, going repentance searches for, uproots the causes of sin and its manifestations. Confessional statements to say, if I've sinned against somebody, 
please forgive me. Those are frequently evasions of truth, a refusal to confront reality. No, no, a clean conscience makes for a nice pillow. A clean conscience lets you sleep at night. And here's what we're saying, that you're repenting, you're turning from sin, you're turning from wrong thoughts of God and you're seeking God. You're studying the Bible and you're studying God and you're going deep with your theology and you're going deep with your faith. And it is not shallow, it is deep. Perhaps the deepest reach of repentance is found in the psalmist's words, Psalm 51, indeed I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in my inward being, therefore teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. When repentance transforms the spirit, one is turned back to God. You know, Western society has a a way of reducing or eliminating the sinfulness of sin. That sin really isn't that bad. In Whatever Became of Sin, Carl Menninger analyzes the moral decline in the post-war era, observing that the language of sin has completely disappeared from society. Sins, he observed, have become crimes against impersonal society. Personal crimes have become illnesses. Collective sins distributed across the population are diluted to an acceptable pollution level of parts per million. And we just say it's all good. Now, for the rest of this chapter, he's going to name a few sins. Because as you seek God, you got to start naming sins in your life and start dealing with them one at a time. He's going to give you a hint. As you seek the Lord, you got to seek the good in the middle of your sin. I'll give you a hint. Some of these, all of these, are, the, are you to, you're to think of them in the holy irony and the sarcasm of it. You're to think of it in the opposite term. For instance, if your sin is arrogance then your solution is the opposite of that, the good, which is humility. You need some good doses of humility. If your sin is criticism and negativity and gossip, what's the opposite of that? Praise, encouragement, blessing. So let's look at the first one, verse seven. For those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. Wormwood is a bitter, aromatic plant You took something so beautiful called justice and you trashed it. You made it a dirty, earthly thing. It's a godly thing. So they are perverting justice. They are actually pursuing actively injustice. What's the opposite of that? The bottom of your list there put the good of justice. It said blank, verse 7. Verse 8. I love verse 8. Verse 8 is the heart of this passage. Verse 8, the voice changes. It's been one of rebuke. It's been a funeral song. Now it's a praise song. We've come to worship. He who made Pleiades and Orion and changes deep darkness into morning, who also darkens day into night, who calls the waters from the sea, pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Look at your Bible. Is L-O-R-D all caps? That is the word Yahweh. He is going back to Exodus chapter 6 when Moses was told, I am is sending you. I am the ever-present one. It can be translated, I was who I was. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He's always been faithful. It is the covenant name of God. It's what he goes on record. He signs. This is what the notary notices when he signs contracts. The stamp of the notary. That is God's 
faithful signature that he will not let you down. He signs his covenants that way, his covenant faithfulness to both bless and curse based on that covenant. He signs his name to it. He will not let you down. He is just and he's good and he wants you to know his nature. That's this point. He wants you to know his nature. He can be trusted. Verse 9. It is he who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gates. What is this saying? So you, you, you pursue injustice. Here you reject reproval. No one can reprove you. No one can say you're wrong. You never say you're sorry because you won't let anybody get in your face. You have nobody whom you're accountable to. So what's the opposite of that? Find accountability. Love the good of rebuke. That's your blank. Love the good of rebuke. This is the heart of disciple making. It's that I, in mutual accountability and transparency, open my life up to one or two trustworthy people in my life to be accountable to them and them to me, that if I'm, if I'm fumbling the ball, if I'm dropping it, if I'm letting down my Faith, in my faithfulness, the people of my life, there's somebody who can get in my face and say, what are you doing? Do you have anybody like that in your life? It's not a rhetorical question. Think about it. Do you have someone who can hold your feet to the fire? Somebody that if you're dropping the ball, they'll come and say, pick it back up, brother. Sister, pick it back up. Stop fumbling. Get back in the game. Be the woman. Be the man that God's called you to be. Be the mom. Be the dad. Be the husband. Be the wife that God's calling you to be. If you don't have something like that, you are missing out on one of the great aspects of the spiritual journey. It's that you travel not alone, you travel with somebody. How's the proverb go? A cord of three, a cord of two is stronger. Iron sharpens iron. That's this. No, the good of rebuke. They reject it. Verse 10, they hate him who reproves in the gate. They abhor him who speaks with integrity. Therefore, because you impose heavy rent on the poor and exact a tribute of grain from them, though you have built houses of well-hewn stone, yet you will not live in them. You have oppressed the poor and you're not gonna get away with it. You have planted pleasant vineyards, yet you will not drink their wine. I will not put up with it, God says. For I know your transgressions are many and your sins are great. You, ought, you who distress righteous and accept bribes and turn aside the poor in the gate. What is the opposite of oppressing the poor and taking advantage of the poor? Charity. This is the good of charity. Generosity. Generosity and charity are good for the soul. You helping out on Wednesday nights in our inner city ministry is good for your soul. You doing something at least, you know, every quarter something to help the impoverished of our area, it's good. And so if you struggle with this, that's where to go. Verse 13, I think, is sarcasm. Therefore, at such a time, the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. I think this is like saying, let sleeping dogs sleep. But who, he who says, let sleeping dogs sleep, will be thrown to the dogs. That's not how the kingdom of God works. Verse 14, seek good, not evil, that you may live. And thus may the Lord God of hosts be with you, just as you have said. So let's, let's, let's review. Sign number one, hear the word of God. How you treat God's word is how you treat God. Seek God, number two. 
The second step toward revival is changing directions in your thoughts and actions and passionately pursuing God. If you are at the end of your rope, these are two things you need to do. If you've grown cold to God, these are two things you need to do. Seek his word and seek him. And then third, seek the good. The way we live our lives shows what we value. So change what you value. Change what you value. Invest in the things that God invests in. Care about the things that God cares about. Do it with passion. Have you ever done that? You ever taken your values and put them out on a sheet and say, what do I live for? What am I passionate? Here's what worship is. When you come here to worship, this is, this is a holy huddle. This is not the game. The game is out there. This is where we make plans in private. We all put our hands in, we say break, and then we go out there and play the game. What difference does the private plans made in here make out there? That's the game. And what you worship is what you value. Worship is you giving your time, attention, affection to what you value the most. And so a clear path makes a confident traveler, a clean conscience makes a nice pillow. Here it says a centered life, a worshiping life, a focused life on the good who hates evil and focuses on the love of what God says is good. That, that centered life is a compass that other people can be confident to follow. That's huge. The third step toward revival in returning to the Lord is to name sins and begin dealing with them one by one by seeking the opposite. By seeking the opposite. Look at verse 15. Hate evil. Did you know God tells you to hate? In your little list there, this is that fourth thing that you can turn to. It's the good of hate. See, in our culture, that, that, that is, that's a struggle in your minds already. Your pastor's saying we're supposed to hate. No, no, the scriptures say it. God says it. God says hate evil. What's one of the ways we say it? If you stand for nothing, you'll fall for anything. We have a problem in our culture, big, big problem. We don't stand up. We don't speak up. We're too quiet. We stand for good things, Many times, but when it comes to the bad thing, we're quiet. We don't speak up. This says you're to hate evil. And there is good in this kind of righteous hate. Now, yes, there's explanations that need to be had when we talk about hate. We're not talking about the way the world hates. We're not talking about a kind of an angry hate. We're talking about a righteous zeal for the things that are good. And by default, the things that are evil we shouldn't be able to stomach them. We shouldn't be entertained by them in the movie theaters. We shouldn't be entertained by them in our jokes. We should hate that which is evil. That's what this text is saying. Third step toward revival is you name the sins in your life and begin dealing with them one by one. And one of the great clues is do it by thinking about the opposite of that sin. If you have a lust problem, What's the opposite of a lust problem? Okay? I think the opposite of a lust problem is a passion for righteousness. A passion for the things that are healthy in your life. If you have a deceitful problem, your tongue is often lying. You are stretching the truth left and right. What is the opposite of lying and deceit? Truth. You need to be in training in truth. 
keep going, right? What is your sin? Name it and then find the opposite. That is a great way to handle it. One of my favorite illustrations is in relationship to this. There was a man who got lost in the desert after wandering around for a long time. His throat began to get very dry and he was about to kill over in his search for water. But he saw a little shack in the distance and he crawled over it because he was on his deathbed. He made his way over to the little shack and saw a small water pump and a jug of water and a note. The note read, quote, pour all the water into the top of the pump to prime it. And if you do this, you will get all the water you need. Now the man had a, had a choice to make. If he trusted the note and he poured the water into it, right, into the pump, he could get all the water he needed, but he didn't know if he could trust the note. If, he, if it didn't work, he would be thirsty and he might die. Or he could choose to grab the jar of water underneath the pump and drink it himself. Get immediate satisfaction. After thinking about it for a moment, he decided to risk it. He took the jar of water and he poured it into the pump and started pumping. And at first, all he heard was sounds. All of a sudden, it got a little pressure and he began to pump. And all of a sudden, water came large and fast. And he not only drank to his fill, he bathed in it. He filled up water bottles. He took a lot with him. And as he was about to leave, he took the jar that was there and he filled it back up. And he put the note back up on top of it. But he had a pen, so he took out his pen and wrote on the bottom of the little note, go ahead, prime the pump. Believe me, it really works. The way you prime the pump spiritually is by hearing the word of God, spending time with it, by seeking God passionately, not half-heartedly, and investing your life in the things that he calls good, hating evil. So if that's where you're at, if that's the message you need to hear, it's your funeral if you want to ignore it. Let's pray. Please, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, prime the pump of the hearts of people here. We have the same choice to make. Do we hold on to what we have because we don't believe there are better things in store for us? Settle for immediate satisfaction or do we trust you, Lord? Give up what we have to get what you have promised. I think the choice is obvious. And to ignore it, it's our funeral. We need to pour in all the water and trust you, God, with everything. Seek you with our whole heart. Love you, Lord, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love you with our attention. Love you with our affection. Love you with our abilities. We have that opportunity here today. And once we have experienced what you have to offer, the living water, we need to tell others around the world, go ahead, go ahead, prime the pump. Believe me, it works. Lord, a clear path makes a confident traveler. A clean conscience makes a nice pillow. And a centered Life makes a compass that others can trust. And I pray that would be us. I pray that our spouses would say that about us. I pray that our kids would rise up and say that about us. That's what we want. We want that to be the testimony about us, that we follow you wholeheartedly. In Jesus' name, amen.